Have you ever traveled with someone who you thought you liked? In fact, you did like them. You looked up to them. You appreciated their company. But close quarters and an extended time frame, and you began to notice things about them. I mean, I'm talking about maybe a college trip with friends or you vacation with another couple or another family, or maybe it was your honeymoon. I don't know. But... <laughs> You begin to notice little things that start to add up. Like, like maybe that person, well, yeah, they're great, but when they eat, it's, they masticate so loudly. You can't hear yourself think over the crunch, crunch, crunch. Or, or maybe uh, they sing a weird high harmony along with the radio, and it's cute at first, but after a while, you're like, just, uh, yeah. Or maybe you realize that they say the word advertisement like they were British. Advertisement. Even though they're from, like, Holt, and so it doesn't make any sense. And as soon as you start recognizing these things, you notice them, you can't stop noticing them. Until it's not long before any little thing could be the straw that breaks the camel's back and it could explode in that little car or plane or wherever you are. Now, I'm not saying that's what happened with Paul and Barnabas. I'm just saying they traveled around the entire world together and everything was fine until right here. One little thing blows it all up. It reminds me of that Far Side cartoon, Tensions Mount on the Lewis and Clark expedition. Remember that? Lewis is writing in his journal about how today, once again, Clark stepped on the back of his shoe, causing his heel to come out. And the, the uh, frequency of this is causing him to doubt its accidental nature. Well, let's back up a little bit. We, we are looking at an ongoing missionary endeavor We've seen uh, over the past few weeks the first missionary journey. And if you reach into your uh, bulletin, you will find a map. Keep this one. It's the last time we're going to print it in color. And we're going to be on this second missionary journey for a while. Stick that in your Bible. Uh, and in black there, you see the first missionary journey. And, and as they went, it would be difficult to overstate how important this was. Even though it looks small compared to later missionary journeys, even though it comes and goes super quick in the Bible, beginning of chapter 13, they're leaving Antioch, end of the next chapter, they're already home. It was an enormous undertaking. What's more, this was the first official missionary journey of the Christian church in which local congregations supported a team of missionaries going into unreached areas to reach unreached people with the gospel. To give you some context, it has been about three years since they returned from the first missionary journey, and it has been many days since they've gotten back from Jerusalem, where the Jerusalem Council took place. We looked at that last week. Of course, the goal of the Jerusalem Council was to avoid a schism in the church, maintain the unity of the church, and Paul and Barnabas were sent as representatives at the center of this to keep the unity, and the next thing we read about them is they have their own little schism. Their unity has been blown apart. It all happens, as Paul suggests, they head out on this second missionary journey, and it all comes down to this one guy, John Mark. He's Barnabas' cousin. He wrote the Gospel of Mark. He shows up somewhat regularly in the New Testament. And we don't know the details of what happened. We know that Mark left with them on the first missionary journey and then left without them about halfway through and went back to Jerusalem. Uh, the scripture says really plainly that he had departed them. 
But it's clear that Paul thought of it as desertion and maybe betrayal. That if you were not willing to endure every difficulty and trial in order to extend the reach of the gospel, then this work ain't for you. And we're not going to be bringing him on our second missionary journey because he let us down on the first. Perhaps Paul's even thinking of the words of Jesus. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is worthy of the kingdom of God. Paul might be thinking, hey, this guy looks back an awful lot. He even goes back. For his part, Barnabas, whose name means son of encouragement, is not about to say, yeah, you're right, Paul. The kid's a dud. Forget him. No, he he wants to give him a second chance. After all, Mark was young. And all of us make mistakes when we're young. And, And he's new at this. And he's trying. And he wants another shot. Here's the thing. The Bible doesn't tell us which of these guys was right. It's not interested in that. Who was right? They're both right to some degree. Paul is focusing his vision on perseverance, right? Remember, like the book of Revelation says, Christians are those who overcome to the end. And Paul's like, we were on this little trip, and he couldn't even overcome to the end of that. Barnabas, on the other hand, is focusing on grace, right? You look at how, I mean, none of us have overcome to the end yet, but we've gotten to where we are now. And when you look back, it's not a straight line. There's a lot of going back. Headed back to Jerusalem, looking back, you're not worthy of the kingdom of God. And yet, here we are, saved by grace through faith in Jesus. Some, however, have suggested that maybe both of them are to blame because they've kind of abandoned the idea of following God's leading in light of just following whatever they feel like doing. And what they would do is point back to the beginning of chapter 13. As they were sent off on the first missionary journey, we read, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and prayer, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. In this case, however, you look in verse 35, and it says, But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, and after some days Paul said to Barnabas, Let's return and visit the brothers. Now, so some would say, you see, it's, it's a whole different thing. They're not being led anymore. They're not being commissioned by the Spirit. They're just doing what they want. And that, my friends, is nonsense. And it's important to remember that. People look at that and they think, well, in the Old Testament, people got the Holy Spirit. They, they were anointed for a particular time or for a particular task. If you were a prophet, you were commissioned for a particular prophecy or campaign, then you were commissioned again. Then you were commissioned again. It was all, it, it was almost like a contract 1099 situation. All right, I'm going to need you again. Not so in the New Testament. We're filled with the Spirit. We're indwelled with the Spirit. We're anointed. We're, we're sent out. We're gifted. And so this original commissioning of them in chapter 13 still applies. They're still doing, they've been called to be the the missionaries of the church. Paul has been called to be the apostle to the Gentiles, and they will continue doing that work. They can't not, even though it's hard. Even though, I mean, they have a fire in their bones. There are trials and things awaiting them that are difficult, and yet they can't help it. They've got to go. Think of the, the quote from Gladys Award, that British missionary to China who wrote to her parents, life is pitiful. Death so familiar, suffering and pain so common, yet I would not be anywhere else. Do not wish me out of this, or in any way seek to get me out, for I will not be got out while this trial is on. 
These are my people. God has given them to me, and I will live or die for him and his glory. Paul and Barnabas have the same sense. That they're going to go back to these churches, of course. These are the people God entrusted to us. They visited quite a few cities. They started quite a few new congregations. Naturally, Paul wants to go back and see them. In fact, you'll remember, look at your map, how they went along there in an almost circle from Antioch down southwest and curled back up, and, and they didn't finish the circle and go back home. Instead, when they got to Derby, they did a 180, and they reversed course and went back again to each of those new churches. Where there weren't elders, they appointed them. They strengthened, they taught, they corrected, they did what they could, and now it's been some time, and they want to go back and see how are things going. You can't just follow them on Instagram back then. They go, oh, they're all right. You can't Skype into their worship services. You either write a letter and send it, which takes forever, or you go there, which takes forever. Paul continually in his ministry does both. He's going to these churches over here and he's writing letters to these churches. He has a heart for his churches. And so he continues to, to reach out. In fact, he, he considers this, this care for his churches to be one of the most heavy things weighing on him because he cares so much for them. In 2 Corinthians 11, remember he lays out all he's endured He's been flogged five times, beaten with rods three times. I haven't been beaten with rods any times. That sounds awful. He's been shipwrecked multiple times. He's been backstabbed. He's been lost. He's, he, he says this, In toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and caps it like this. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me and anxiety for all the churches. That's the thing that really compels him. His care for his churches. He's, he's in it for the long haul. He, he's not thinking in terms of a spiritual gig economy. I do this thing and then it's done. No, he's a father to them. This makes me think of our uh, bylaws, which say when you become an elder, you're set apart as an elder in the church, it's for life. If you want, you can get out, but it involves a ritual where we beat you with rods. Now, you, you can get out if you want, need to get out, but it's not just, I mean, if we're thinking in terms of signing up for the PTA or the, the neighborhood association or something, we think, well, I'm not going to do that the rest of my life. I'll do my time. But as believers, we, we follow him. There's no end point. And when you, and when you are able to minister to someone, God has given you now, if you can continue a mentoring relationship or, or you can continue reaching out to them, he's given you the commission to do that. Now, granted, he couldn't keep up continually with every single person he ever talked to, every convert he ever made, but he could continue to keep up with each of the churches and see how he could serve them. And you and I, we, we probably can't continue to have an ongoing relationship with every person that we encourage or proclaim the gospel to but there are people God has put in your life and he has given you a responsibility to mentor them to make sure if they seem like they're, they're, they're becoming uh, despairing or, or they're, they're losing hope that you reach out. That if there's something you can do to help them that you offer. We have this example here of not, not a uh, here's your job now, here's your job now, here's your job. No, but here's the Holy Spirit to guide you and strengthen you and empower you and go. The finish line is when you take your last breath. As they part from here, 
It's easy for us to read into the text some like bitterness, I think. Especially when we read that it was a sharp disagreement. Uh, it's easy for me to think of Paul saying, probably Paul first, fine, I don't need you. I'll find another missionary partner who's even better than you two guys. And Barnabas saying, well, we don't need you either. We'll go do our own thing. But even though it was a sharp disagreement, these are godly men. And we have every reason to believe that when they parted, they did it right, with the right spirit. And the result is that they've now doubled the number of missionary enterprises in the ancient church from one to two. They go on two different paths now, and the gospel goes to different places at once. Barnabas and Mark sail to Cyprus. Paul heads out over land, stopping at every church he can find. And notice, these are not churches, if you look at the first missionary journey, these first, some going up to Tarsus and then going all the way. These aren't churches they visited before. Where'd they come from? They're the first missionaries. Where did these churches come from? The natural spread of the gospel. This is a good reminder in this moment. That God's kingdom does not depend on us and all of us thinking the, the right strategic thoughts and writing down the right vision statements and doing exactly this, followed by that, followed by that. Because if I don't do it all exactly right in the right order, it's going to fail. No, the church is flourishing on its own, but Paul and Barnabas and Silas and all the rest they want to speed things along. They want to obey the Great Commission. They want to be the instrument of bringing the gospel and founding churches. Same way, we don't need to worry about, oh, hold on, hold on, we didn't know exactly what, what's our strategy. What, where exactly are we going to go and what exactly are we going to approach and how, how, what precisely are we going to say when we get there? These men know wherever they are, they'll be faithful witnesses. In fact, that's what the Great Commission says while going, make disciples. If we want to get really grumpy about the parts of speech in that great commission, it's not go and make disciples, it's while you're going, make disciples. You gotta go somewhere. You can't stay here. You gotta, you got and while you're going, make disciples. And as we see later, while they're going, if God has somewhere particular he wants them to go, he'll get them there. They don't need to sweat it. And so as they go, the team grows. First, it's just Paul. That's not going to do. Jesus never sent anyone out one by one. It was two by two. So first, he adds to his team Silas. We don't know a ton about Silas at this point, but we see what Paul sees in him. First of all, he's a leader in the church in Jerusalem, trusted by all, to the point where when the Jerusalem council says, here's our decision, they send two guys out to bring the letter all around and make sure everyone understands it. It's Judas and Silas. Different Judas. Other guys exploded, chapter one. But so, yeah, he, he's, he's thought highly of by everyone, and it's not, number two, it's not because he's lifted himself up and made much of himself. It's because he has served in the church in Jerusalem, because we're told he has risked his life for the gospel. And thirdly, at the Jerusalem Council, Silas, like Paul, was all about salvation by grace through faith and not by keeping the works of the law. So he has good doctrine. You put these things together, and Paul says, I've got my guy. Silas, we're heading out. We're going to go visit these churches that we've visited previously, the churches we've planted, the, the churches we've, we've helped to build up and, and, and established elders and that sort of thing. Second person who's added is added at the beginning of chapter 16. We'll see in a minute. His name is Timothy. Quite a young man. 
A dozen years later, in 1 Timothy 4, Paul's going to refer to him still as a young man. And this is in a time of shorter life expectancy. So he's probably a teenager here. He's full of zeal and excitement and optimism and, and passion for the work. And this shows us something. Churches need young people with lots of excitement and they're bursting to say, let's go do this. Let's go. I think of some, some of the people at Judson who are going, you know, we need to get out there at Homeless Angels. We need to give them some food. We need, to, you know, we, we need that. Young people bring something, but you know what we also need is for the young people to be mentored by older men and older women, mature Christians who've been down the road before. There's no single generational church anywhere in the New Testament. To, to set out to say, we're going to reach this age group is to set yourself up for failure. In fact, maybe the church is the only place left, arguably outside of baseball, where you still have five generations gathering together benefiting from the point of view and the gifts and the strengths of the other four. And so that's very important as well. Timothy is a young guy, and he's a very different kind of guy from Paul. Paul's mostly an evangelist. He proclaims the gospel where he goes, and he does it with just boldness. Whether he's in the synagogue, he's on the street corner, he's in a pagan temple, he goes right into the throne rooms of governors and kings. He doesn't care. He's confrontational a lot. He corrects and rebukes and teaches. Timothy, on the other hand, has a, a more of a pastor's heart. To me, Timothy almost fills that Barnabas role in the team here. That hole left by Barnabas for someone who'd be, I don't know, nice. And, and so we see <laughs> Timothy going to the churches that have been established by Paul through his strong preaching. And he solves, solves conflicts. He shepherds. He cares for the flock. He gives wise counsel. He listens to their struggles. And it's so clear from Paul's writings that he sees the value in having different kinds of personalities, different kinds of approaches, different kinds of people working together to spreading the gospel. Listen to what he says about Timothy in Philippians chapter 2. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. That description tells us that Timothy... He was no lone ranger. Neither was Paul. Neither was Barnabas. Neither was any of these guys. They're working together. Jesus, again, sent us out two by two in the very beginning, and that was, that was just symbolic. Don't go it alone. Two by two is a very, very beginning to how we ought to minister. Sometimes there are these duos, these iconic duos, Peter and John, Priscilla and Aquila, Cleopas and Mary. There, there's two, and, and that's good. But two is a minimum, and here we see we've added now Silas, we've added now Timothy, and before this passage is done, we're adding one more. Luke. You may know him as the writer of this book, Acts, and the writer of the Gospel of Luke. This means on one trip now, we've, we've seen both the writer of the second Gospel and the writer of the third Gospel. A lot of important people moving around, not thinking very highly of themselves, but seeing themselves as servants. Luke was a physician. He was an author, clearly. He wrote these books. Tradition tells us he was a painter. 
And like John, he doesn't like to make a big deal out of himself being in the midst of these things, downplays his involvement. It makes him feel weird. But notice that even as these teams kind of change and realign, it's not a permanent thing. Christians are working together with Christians, disciples with disciples, and as we read the rest of the New Testament, Barnabas and Mark aren't dead to Paul. It was just in a disagreement. In fact, thinking about Mark, Colossians 4, Paul is writing from prison. It says, Mark is a fellow prisoner with me, in chains for the gospel. In that same verse, he says, as I told you before, if Barnabas comes to you, welcome him. I vouch for him. He's a good guy. In Paul's last letter, written to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4.11, we read, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in the ministry. Paul comes around and sees the value that Mark brings to the table in a missionary endeavor. I think it's wild that at the very beginning of this second missionary journey, this is, this is early on in missions history, we have Paul, Timothy, Silas, Luke, Mark and Barnabas over here, and then you continue reading about this, and they're coming together in different groups throughout. In 1 Peter 5, we find that both Silas and Mark were ministering with Peter. Disagreements did not cause rifts that could not be healed, grudges, resentment, or bitterness. No, it, this was simply a pragmatic thought. You go that way, we go this way. God be with you. We'll all bring the gospel. As chapter 16 begins, then, we start reading some city names. They should be familiar to you if you've been here the last few weeks because we have been talking about Derby and Lystra and uh, Iconium, only in the opposite order, because if you look here, they're now going backwards from the way that Paul originally set out in the first missionary journey. And it's in Lystra that they find this guy Paul. I'm sorry, this guy Timothy. It's in Lystra that, that we read that there was a, a disciple there by the name of Timothy, and basically he took one look at him and said, you are missionary material, you need to come with us. As we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, Timothy and his mother were probably converted during Paul's first missionary journey, and now we have then three generations of Christians in one household. Grandma, mom, and son, all serving Jesus. Timothy's godly mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois trained him up, not only in the scriptures from infancy, but once they accepted the gospel, they taught him about Jesus. So Timothy doesn't have some crazy testimony. I was on my way to murder Christians, and then Jesus knocked me down. No, his testimony is a lot like mine. Yeah, I've always known about God. I've always read the Bible. My parents taught me about Jesus. The end? No, this is the beginning, but that's the testimony. Gosh, Mother, grandma, that would have been a great Mother's Day sermon last week, wouldn't it? So would next week's uh, text about uh, Lydia. But, you know, as we see here, sometimes God closes these doors for reasons we don't quite understand. But yes, we see him with a regular testimony. An ordinary guy with a lot of passion for Jesus because he's been saved from all the same stuff that Paul was saved from. He was just spared from living through it. And then in verse 3, something really weird happens. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. Okay. I mean, Paul just got done making a great case with Barnabas at the Jerusalem Council that circumcision and keeping the law were not requirements for salvation. 
They spread that news all over. Silas did that. Now Paul and Silas are together. And we read, he takes one look at Timothy and says, all right, you'll be good, except, all right, I need you to uh, cut your hair, fill out this W-2, and then get circumcised, and then we can go. I'm sorry, what was that? Uh, I said, then get circumcised, and then we can go. What? Why? Is this hypocritical? Well, what's the difference? The difference is that the gospel is absolutely not at stake here. The, the only stumbling block between someone and coming to faith ought to be the cross itself. And when the Spirit calls them, it's no stumbling block at all. They fall down at the foot of the cross. But when we start putting up extra hurdles and stumbling blocks and shutting doors ourselves, well, that's sinful. We should be opening the way to the cross. And so just as telling all Gentiles everywhere, you have to keep the ceremonial law, circumcision, dietary restrictions, you know, clothing restrictions, all these different things, was an unnecessary hurdle. So to go into the synagogue, where Paul went every time he entered a city, it was the synagogue first, bringing Timothy, especially in these early cities where they knew his background, pagan father, Jewish mother, if he wasn't circumcised, that would be an unnecessary distraction, an unnecessary hurdle between these people and the gospel. How would they know Timothy wasn't circumcised? That I haven't figured out. But since it's Paul making the call, not Timothy, he says, eh, better safe than sorry. So with that unpleasantness out of the way, they head out. By the way, there are other people where there was pressure for circumcision to be done. Titus, for example. Titus, there was great pressure. We find out in Galatians 3. And Paul said, no, I'm absolutely not going to have him circumcised. I'm not going to put that yoke on his shoulders and say, you've got to go do this. Because he was a Gentile. There's something special going on here. Titus' mother, as a Jew, he was thought of as a Jew. And so Paul looks at him and says, you have the same secret weapon I do. You can reach Jews and Gentiles. You just have to check a couple boxes here. They're important boxes, they're painful boxes, but you check them once, and then you can have an audience everywhere we go, in the synagogues, on the street corners, in the, in the pagan temple, in the hall of philosophers, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 9, To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. And now both of these men are ready to do this. Silas probably as well. And so they head off. And they're following the imperial road. And if you look, you see they've gone Derby, Lystra. They're, they're going to wind up following the imperial road. It's going to take them to the coast, go west there to the Mediterranean coast, and see Ephesus. That's in the province of Asia. Seems to be what Paul had in mind. Would have been a great place to start preaching the gospel. There was both Jewish and Gentile populations there. He could have gone in there like a a freight train. But what happens? They were forbidden by the Holy Spirit from speaking the word in Asia. So they say, all right, let's take a right. We'll go up. We're going to head into uh, Bithynia. You see Bithynia up there? No, no, you're not. The Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go into Bithynia. Doors are being closed. We're not sure how. Perhaps by a word of prophecy, like we saw earlier in Acts. Perhaps by a vision, like we see later in this same passage. Could have just been circumstances. It's not going to work out because of X or Y. We don't don't know why, but we know that they were kept from going into those places. And we have to wonder why. Why? You know, sometimes you look back at your life and you say, I almost did something very stupid. Could have ruined my life, could have ended my life, but God intervened and kept me from doing it, thank God. 
But when you wanted to do something noble and good, even something for his glory, and he kept you from doing it. I've talked to guys who say, I put 10 years of my life into trying to plant a church, and, and I wasn't doing it for my own glory or my own name. I was doing it for him. I know my motives were pure, and yet God, he kept me from really getting it established, and it fell apart. Why would that be? Well, you're in good company when that happens. Not only does this happen here to Paul and Silas and Timothy, but in Romans 1 we read, I remember you in my prayers at all times, and I pray that now at last by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now. He planned, he prayed, he prepared, and God said, nope, that happens. It is a way that God leads us. It's just not fun. It's not that God doesn't want Paul and Silas and company to go to Ephesus. In fact, if you look at your map, you'll see that they wind up there at Ephesus during this very journey. Eventually, it's a question of timing, it seems. I've heard it said before that there are three possible answers God can give to our prayers. Yes, no, and wait. I've never been a big fan of that little truism because it seems too cute and too clever and too simplistic, but here it kind of applies. They said, we want to go to Ephesus, Lord, and he said, hold on, and he kept them from going. He forbade them, however he did that, and you look at your map, they're kept from going south and west into Asia. They're kept from going north or northeast into Bithynia. What are their options? They're kind of squeezed here. They can either turn around and go back or they can keep pushing forward the one way they can go. Look at where they're headed. They're going to wind up at Troas, a major seaport. There they can say, all right, where are we going to sail? What does God have in store for us? This reminds me of the Italian job, that movie. Not the good one from the 60s, but the remake. The one with Marky Mark. Remember, that they, they, needed, they needed that truck to be in this particular spot so they could, spoilers, everybody, they could blow up some bombs underneath it and the truck would fall down into the sewer and they could rob it. And they said, how do we make that happen? And they had the computer guy hack into, like, the traffic center and make every single light in the city red except the one path that they needed this truck to go. That's kind of what God's doing here. Closing every door except for the ones that lead in the particular direction. And we're over here going, God, why don't you just come down and tell me what you want me to do when maybe he is by closing these doors and those doors and those doors. And we say, I don't really want to go there. God, are you, will you tell me where to go? Well, they follow forward. They push on. They end up in Troas. They're not going to sit there and pray, God, open doors, open doors. No, they're going, close, close, close. All right, well, we know God wants us to go. Troas is near the ancient city of Troy, and when they get there, I think we find out one reason that God wanted them to go, because this is where they finally hook up with Luke. His name isn't mentioned, but you notice the pronouns change from they did this to we went on. And that's going to continue to be the case off and on through the rest of the book of Acts. Sometimes he says, stay behind and take care of this. Sometimes he sends them ahead, but he is now traveling as well with this missionary party. They, if they'd gone right to Ephesus, they would have missed Luke. That may be one reason, but perhaps even more is that he's pushing them with closed doors right up to the doorstep where he is going to throw wide a door to a whole new world of mission opportunity. Macedonia, in other words, Europe. 
This is huge. A huge leap forward for the mission of the church. And so as they sit there thinking, all right, we're at Troas, we're at a port, what happens in the night? Paul has a vision. A Macedonian saying, come on over to Macedonia and help us. Come on over and help us. And now the whole team is in place. God has shown them what they are to do. He's closed doors, yes, but now he's opened a big one. After sort of wandering in the desert like Israel of old, they're finally getting ready to get on a boat and sail. And I think in the Syriac version of the text, there's a text note in the margin that says, when he realized where they were headed, Paul looked wryly at his compass and said, we have a heading. That's not real. That's not a thing. But, but, but for real, they did set out now on a whole new chapter in world evangelism. In fact, the, the negative caricature of Paul that we might even get from the fact that he splits with his buddy over whether or not to give a second chance to poor John Mark, this negative view, we can throw it out the window when we read this passage. Because, I mean, think about it. You have a night vision. You're an apostle. You've heard from God. You've, you've been caught up into the third heaven. And you hear this, this voice, and you see this Macedonian, and he says, come over to Macedonia. And you go, I think I know what this probably means. We're supposed to go to Macedonia. But he doesn't just say to them, guys, we've got our heading. Get your stuff. Get on the boat. We're going. No, he tells them about the vision. He shares it with those who are in leadership. He doesn't lord it over them like the leaders of the Gentiles. And then we read, we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Guys, are we going to do this? Well, yeah. This is the only door open to us, and it's an exciting one. But he doesn't force it on them. He shares the vision with them, and they grab on as a result. The voice said, help us. The man said, help us. And all of Paul's companions agree the best way to help these people is by going there and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Luke's with them. I'm sure people are they're getting eye exams. They're having infected wounds looked at and stuff. Yeah, they're helping. They're caring for. They always do that. But the best thing they can do to help these people from an eternal point of view is to bring them the gospel because they don't have it. Listen, as you this week see doors closed in your life and you get frustrated and you get all worked up, you say, God, I wanted to do this. I mean, think, think about St. Paul. God, oh, I, 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 wanted, I wanted to go with, with Barnabas. I wanted to keep traveling with him and it just didn't work out. I wanted to go up into Bithynia and it, 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 I was kept from, I wanted to go down into Asia and I was forbidden. Oh, there's all these... And yet he understands that God can be leading in that way, funneling him right where he wants him to be. Assuming God may very well be at work even in his disagreement, his sharp disagreement. God may very well be at work in these things that seem difficult and these trials. And yet closed doors can move us forward. Conflict can move us forward. If we trust God who is sovereign Anything that's happening can be a, a mode, a vehicle to move us forward to where he wants us to be. Stepping out in faith and being receptive to the leading of the Spirit and open and, and having your nose buried in the Word of God are key. If we remember that God led these men who were so very close to him down this path 
this hallway where every time they turned toward a door, it slammed in their face. But at the end, there was a light. And that light was, come on over to Macedonia. Remember that. God has things for us to do. And maybe it's what we've always wanted. I've, I've always wanted to be a preacher. I want to be a cartoonist for a minute. But not, then I wanted to be a preacher. You know what? It, it, when, when a church opened up right away, I said, oh God, that must mean you also want me to do this. That's confirmation. But what if it had been slam door, slam door, slam door, slam door? I know some guys like that. Get real frustrated. Real bent over. And after a time, they say, oh, thank goodness. We had one slammed door, and about once a month, I say to Aaron, oh, thank God we wound up at Judson and not there. Not that it was a bad church, but living in that setting, I don't think I would have handled it. I would have gone nuts. You would have found me mumbling to myself in some barn somewhere. I don't belong here. (laughs) God is leading. God is leading you. If you are filled with the Holy Spirit, He is guiding you. Sometimes it looks like open door. Come on, come on and help us. Come on this way. Sometimes it looks like close, 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 close. Trust in Him. He's leading you. He's leading us. He knows what's best for us. He knows how the story ends. And He knows what the next chapter will bring. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would trust, just as Paul did, that even in the midst of conflict and difficulty, even in the midst of trial and temptation, in the midst of of being forbidden from going one way and, and not allowed to go the other, that, Lord, you are leading and guiding and loving us. We pray that we would remember that, that you are a good God, and that you see things from an angle we cannot even comprehend, in a dimension we cannot even comprehend. Lord, may we trust in you to guide us, O thou great Jehovah. In your holy name we pray. Amen.